other things we need to be aware of and be prayerful of? Mabel Chambers. Yeah. Linda said she had a good day today. I know I talked to Karen earlier in the week and they were she was back where she normally is, but it sounds like she's improving. Good. So she did have a good day. Mabel Chambers, Karen uh Wren's mother. Kathy Wren, sorry. Kathy Wren. Mrs. Wren's mother. Sorry. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Okay. How are things going with you? Good, good so far? Me. With the baby? Yeah. We big. We good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, right? <laughs> good. It's a blessing. I'm going to write down healthy. I'm not going to write down big. Anybody else? All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray together as we get started tonight. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that we can come to you, we can come before your throne with confidence because of the cross. We can come before you to find help in time of need. We can come before you knowing that you know exactly how we feel, that you have experienced how we feel. We do not have a great high priest, the word says, that's not, who is not, who, who is able to sympathize with us and to empathize with us. Lord, we praise you for that. It's because of that that we can cast our anxieties upon you, knowing you care. And so, Lord, we, we 
lift up these brothers and these sisters that are in various stages of suffering and hurting. Uh, Lord, we praise you for the recovery we've seen in Jan's life and in Desiree's life. We praise you for that and for, and for Pastor Larry. Uh, but we know, God, that our ultimate hope is not in healing from sickness here. Our ultimate hope is that our life is held fast in you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray for those who are sick and those who are suffering that you would give them special measures of grace. Uh, Lord, we do pray for healing, but more than healing, we pray for comfort in their souls. That they would be reminded of 2 Corinthians 4, that they have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the power is yours and not ours. Lord, we do pray for our members who are shut-ins, and we pray that, God, you'd mobilize your people to love them and to care for them and to carry, the, to carry fellowship to them. Lord, as we open your word tonight, we pray that you would, Holy Spirit, open it to our minds, help us to see beautiful and wonderful things. Help us to be conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Uh, several of you have come in. I don't know that I have enough notes. I'll do my best. Will you, um, if you need some notes, I've just now requisitioned Ke- uh, Kelly to do that. If you need some notes, just raise your hand. We'll be in Matthew 5 again. We'll do our best to finish that chapter tonight. Finish the last three of the six points of correction that we started last week. So if you recall, Jesus is teaching the disciples on the on the Mount of Beatitudes. They're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. There are other people listening, but he's speaking to his disciples. And Last week he started talking about the Christian in relation to the law, the Old Testament law. How do we understand it? How do we live in relation to it? And he started using these phrases. You see it in chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old. And then he says, but I say to you, And so he's setting up this distinction that you've heard these things taught and you've heard them taught by teachers and they've been around for a very long time but they've gotten misconstrued. They've taken the law and they've made it into something that it was never intended to be. They're not thinking about the intention and the purpose of the law. They've gotten so tied up with, they're so hung up with how do I obey it so that I don't break it? And so he talked about anger last week being not just physical anger, but anger in the heart being akin to murder. And he talked about lust being not just a, an outward act, but it's something in our hearts. And talked about divorce. And so tonight we're going to turn our attention to oaths, retaliation, and enemies. And to cap it off, Jesus is going to say to us, be perfect. So, let's pick up in verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, the footstool, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, 
Some of you pointed out, uh, I just gave you my notes again, and I commented, it's just more work for me to delete some words and put it in line. So there you go. Uh, in this fourth statement, Jesus begins not by quoting a particular scripture in the Old Testament, but by summarizing various commands in uh, the Old Testament. Um, hang on, that's not in the right place. <laughs> Anyhow, we'll move on. Uh, there are particular places in, in the Old Testament where God uh, allows for oaths, but He is summarizing, that, that is in the right place, I apologize, that He's summarizing kind of the teaching of the Old Testament. You've heard it said, do not swear falsely. So the Old Testament, you see there, God often guaranteed His promises with an oath. There's a, a swearing by, or we often think of that in a negative sense. You see there, I wrote, I swear to God, we've heard that. Kids will say that, I swear on, you know, my mom, or I swear on this, that, and the other. And what we're trying to do is to emphasize the nature of what we're saying. If I say, I swear by, what I'm saying to you is, you can trust what I'm saying is true. And so we see God doing that in the Old Testament in numerous places. But specifically, I listed there Genesis chapter 9, and I'll turn there. Genesis chapter 9, verse 9. And the text says this, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall, I be, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And he says, This is the sign that I make between me and you and every living creature. And we know that sign is the rainbow. God put a bow, I will put my bow in the clouds. And so he's making a vow, he's making an oath, or he's making a guarantee, I'm not going to do this again. And the Old Testament permits a person to swear by the name of God, to invoke the name of God when making a promise, making a covenant together in God's name to substantiate an important promise or an affirmation. And what it was for, the reason it was permitted, is to help the person carry through. To help substantiate, I said I'm going to do this, and by invoking God's name and attaching God's name to it, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm now obligated to fulfill that promise. And so the Old Testament law demanded that a person be true to an oath that was sworn. You see that in Leviticus and, and Numbers. And Jewish rabbis had developed this, this structure of how to do that. Now you've heard me say from the pulpit a few times the, the word Mishnah, that's just that big collection of writings where the Jewish rabbi said, this is how to obey. If you have a question on a specific thing, like, okay, what kind of oath can I swear and by what can I swear it? The rabbis had listed that out. So you would consult the Mishnah or you consult a rabbi. But you see, in Jesus' day, it had been, become common that only oaths sworn in God's name were legally binding. So if I told you, I swear to you that this is going to happen, I covenant with you that this is going to happen, and I swear on Jerusalem. That's a big deal. Jerusalem was a, uh, is an incredibly important city, and it was to the Jews, is where the temple was. But it wasn't legally binding according to the rabbi's teaching in Jesus' day. If one was not quite so serious about the oath, he might swear by something less important. Swear by heaven or by Jerusalem there. 
But as with other points in the law, the focus on the intent was lost. When it got to Jesus' day and they were teaching about oaths and covenants and swearing, they weren't talking about, they weren't teaching about the intent. They were asking the question, what exactly can I do and not do? How close can I walk to that line and still be in the green? How close can I get to that line and still be considered being obedient? So the intent of the law of oaths was to bridle our proneness to lie. To bring our desire to lie, our, our uh, uh, tendency to lie, was to bring that under control. In a positive sense, the law of oaths was to encourage integrity, to encourage God's people to be true to what they said. And so to help them out with that, God said, yes, you can invoke an oath, you can make an oath, and that will help you be true to it. And yet the tendency to find loopholes grew with numerous things, as we've seen, and so it weakened the intentions. The Pharisees are looking at the same law that Jesus was looking at, And yet their interpretation of it, their understanding of it, was way different. They were looking for loopholes. Jesus is saying, you've missed the entire purpose as to why Jesus, as to why God gave it. And so the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, had separated their definitions of holiness and worldliness from biblical definitions of holiness and worldliness. Now, I've had some conversations with some of you in my time here about just about that very thing. Are we getting our definitions from the Bible? Or are we getting our definitions from somewhere else and just thinking they're from the Bible? Well, the Pharisees were using Bible language, religious language, but they weren't defining them. They weren't, they weren't uh, laying things out as the Bible says it to be laid out. Now, as I said, we do this today. Many religious people act this way in the church today. They put the sum total or the full total weight of worldliness on a certain behavior. If you do blank, then you're worldly. If you hang out with certain kind of people, then you're worldly. If you curse, if you drink, if you smoke, if you dress in certain ways, if you don't conform to church behavior, if you're not falling in line with tradition, if people don't do the things that I think they should, then they're worldly. That's what the rabbis had done. If you, if you take an oath and invoke God's name, then it's legally binding. But if you take an oath and you don't really want to be legally held to it, you don't have to invoke God's name. You can invoke something lesser. And that way you can still be true, but you just won't be held to account. And so they had taken a religious idea... And they had made it their own thing. They had made it applicable, or they had, they had perverted it, really is what they'd done, to fit what they wanted. And so yet, like the Pharisees, they failed to let the Bible define the terms of what it means to be righteous, what it means to be worldly. Is it righteous to take God's law and water it down to make it fit what we want it to fit? No. It's not. But sometimes we don't put the effort in to ask the question, what is God saying about this? Sometimes we don't put the effort in because we either don't want to put the effort in or we don't want to find out the answer to it about what is God actually saying 
about this. Maybe it's a topic. Maybe it's a theological topic or doctrine that you don't like. Those things exist. There are hard doctrines in the Bible. Maybe it's a law that God has given that you don't like. And just like with lust, no one wants to hear, hey, if you even look with desire, you've committed adultery. That's hard teaching. And the Pharisees had failed to let the Bible inform their practice. And sometimes we forget that the Bible says that the sum total of righteousness and worldliness lies in the heart and not in the actions. We tend to be visual creatures. We look at how people behave. We look at what people do. And we make judgments based on the outward stuff. And there's a story in the Bible that highlights the foolishness of that. Anybody know? That highlights the foolishness of looking what we see versus looking at what God sees. First Samuel 16. David is prepping to face that big, ugly, giant Goliath. And God tells him, you look, you're looking at what you can see. You're looking at the outward stuff. God searches the heart. Actually, actually, that's in 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is anointing David. And... Samuel's hung up on the fact that David's brothers look better than David, look more kingly than David. And God says, Samuel, you're looking at what you see. I'm looking at his heart. And to show what that means, God says, now go face Goliath. Because everybody's so scared about what they see that they miss the point that God is bigger than Goliath. And in the same way, sometimes we forget that God judges our intentions. He judges our stance of our hearts more than our actions. Now, he judges our actions. Let's not miss that. But sometimes we get it backward. We judge the outward. We judge the behavior. We judge things that God is saying, you're missing the point. And so when Jesus is teaching, he goes to the heart of the law again and says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you. And he goes on to say, just let your words be honest. There's no need for all these oaths. There's no need for all this swearing by this and that and the other. Just let what you say be true. His prohibition against swearing does not mean profanity. When we think about swearing, we think about swear words or profane language. He's not talking about that. He's talking about invoking God's name to substantiate a promise being made. I promise you in the name of God I'll do this. He knows our hearts. Now, one of our cultural sayings these days, especially with romance, is follow your what? Follow your heart, right? I know what the Bible says about that. It says the heart is wicked and not to be trusted. So our cultures go around saying, hey, follow the thing that's not to be trusted. And you know what we see in our culture? People... Reaping, following of false gods, which is the heart. Jesus knows that our hearts tend towards being duplicitous, which means lying. Saying one thing, doing another. He knows that. And he knows that people sometimes invoke an oath in order to conceal their intent to deceive. 
Sometimes we intend to deceive someone, but to cover that up, we'll make a promise. I promise you I'll do this. Sometimes we do that just to avoid conflict. I promise to you I'll do this, and then we never do it. Maybe it's said in a meeting. Look, I'll do that. Maybe it's said in one-on-one conversation. But we have no intention of doing it. But we want to get out of that environment. We want to get out of that conflict. And so we'll just say, yes, I promise I'll do that. Never, never have the intention of doing it. Jesus knows that we lie. That's, that's hard. Think about it. Jesus knows that we lie. That's difficult. Because even though we know that we lie, we don't like to think about that. Sometimes we lie even in our, even while not intending to lie. How often have you met someone on Sunday morning in the church and, hey, how you doing today? They're just looking depressed and heavy. How you doing? Fine. That's a lie probably. You can look at them and say, look, that's, you're not fine. So our hearts are prone to that. And the point of Jesus' teaching is that the disciple of Jesus should be a person of integrity even in their speech. The whole point of this oaths thing is that our righteousness should evidence itself even in how we talk and in what we say. Person of integrity is one who in daily conversation is so truthful, dependable, genuine, guileless, and reliable that his or her words can be believed without an oath. You met that kind of person that you know they're good for what they say. You don't have to say, are you sure? You promise? You just know that if that kind of a person says, hey, I'll take care of that, you know it's as good as taken care of. Anybody ever seen the old movie um, Hook with Robin Williams? So, in the opening scene, uh, he's, at a, he's at his daughter's play, and his son is with him in the audience, and he gets a phone call, and he's obsessed with the work. And he agrees to a meeting the next day, and his son says, I have, a, I have a ball game, I have a ball game. He says, I promise I'll be there. And his son's nagging on him. He says, my word is my bond. And then he doesn't show up to the ball game. We, we, have, we, we have those kind of experiences a lot. Jesus says that that's not becoming of the Christian disciple. And not only is it not becoming, it's sin. And so, we need to be clear, oaths are not outrightly forbidden in the New Testament. Jesus is not saying oaths uh, corporately or uh, comprehensively are forbidden. Because He Himself takes an oath when He's before Pilate. We see Paul making an oath in 2 Corinthians and in Galatians. But he points out that if an oath is sworn at all, it's sworn in the name of God. The Pharisees are trying to make this distinction. If you don't swear in the name of God, you're not legally bound to it. You can swear by something lesser, like Jerusalem. You can swear by the earth. But who owns the earth? God. Who owns Jerusalem? God. Who owns all the people that we tend to swear by? God. And so any promise we make, any swearing that we would do, is invoking God whether we want it to or not. And so disciples should be, Jesus says, trustworthy in their speech. We shouldn't have to invoke these promises. We shouldn't have to say, I swear by such and such. It should just be that the gospel is so real in our lives that we are following Jesus with such 
fervor and passion that what I say, the content of my language is worship. I don't want, I don't want, uh, I don't want lying in my worship. And so even speaking is worship. We want to be people of integrity. And so again, last week I talked about how the Beatitudes are necessary for all of these things. If the Christian doesn't have the values and the characteristics of the Beatitudes, none of this stuff can ever make sense or, or, or be applied. And so you see there, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness do not need an oath to vouch for their honesty. If I'm hungering after righteousness, then that's going to extend to what I say. That's going to extend to promises that I make. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect in what I say and what I promise. There's going to be times, even when I intend to keep a promise, that I'm going to have to break it. But on the whole, Jesus is saying, our worship of God should extend to what we say. Our obedience to Jesus' teaching should overflow from a heart and an attitude that is rightly oriented to God. What we speak from our lips comes from our inner being. So a dependable heart will utter dependable words. When a person's word is honest, if this is how the church operated, then we would be free to depend fully on each other. Instead of wondering, are they going to do that? Do I need to follow up behind them? Or thinking, you know, I just do everything myself. But furthermore, the content of our speech indicates what lies in our hearts. The content of what we say, the tone of what we say, indicates what's in our hearts. If we're always and only critical of others and their behavior, we may be fairly certain of our hardness of heart. And recall that Jesus came out to seek and to heal the sick, not point the finger in condemnation. Now, He came to condemn, but He also said, I came to seek the lost. I came to be with the sick. I didn't come just to talk to people who sound and look right. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so our speech as Christians, what we say and the content of what we say, should be a reflection of our standing before God, of our relationship with God, of the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So any questions about that before I press on? He promised that he would be there, and then he wasn't there. And it's not that, it's not a sin to make promises that sometimes we don't fulfill. Because we all do that. But in the movie, he had no intention of being there. He said that, I'll be there, but it was to hush his son. Not because he intended to be there. And in the movie, he ends up sending somebody to record with a video camera. Um... Well, let's go on to an eye for an eye. Jesus talks about retaliation. Lex talionis, what it's called in the, the Latin. In his fifth statement, Jesus condemns this idea of retaliation. And not retaliation as an idea, but retaliation as we tend to practice it. As it was being practiced in Israel when he came along. It had become an opportunity just to promote personal revenge. You've wronged me, I'm going to get you back. Right, watch your back, or um, 
you know, uh, man, my, my mind's just misfiring tonight. Sorry. I was going to say something and it left. I know, I'm too young for that. So every y'all keep saying that. Um, but it had become an opportunity to promote personal revenge. But the idea of eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is an Old Testament idea. You can read that in the Old Testament. I listed some references there for you. In Deuteronomy, it says that language explicitly. As a punishment, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Life for a life. It's also found outside of the Bible. Something called the Code of Hammurabi, which is a really old legal document that originated in the African continent area, Middle Eastern area. But this law was established to put a check on or to put a restraint on inappropriate punishment. To control excess. It was intended to equalize justice. Because you see, justice is never unequal. Justice as an idea is always equal. It's always right. Because justice as an idea comes from God. Now we pervert justice. We misapply justice. I was uh, reading in my Lyndon Johnson biography about um, the story of Emmett Till. Anybody ever remember that name? It was an African-American teenager who was brutally murdered in the South for making a comment to a white woman um, about the same time that Rosa Parks was arrested. And these two white men uh, murdered him and threw his body in the water, in a river, and they ended up finding him. And that kind of set into motion the civil rights movement. But it's that idea of retaliation that he did something, maybe, we still don't know, but it was nothing more than a comment made, and their retaliation was a brutal beating and murder. And God says, I know that's natural to humanity, and so I'm going to put a check on that. Justice has to be done when wrongs are committed. Now, we need to note... God never permits retaliation personally. In the Old Testament law, if somebody wronged you, they poked your eye out, you weren't allowed to go poke their eye out. You had to turn it over to the civil law and let the civil law carry out the judgment. Because if we're honest, somebody pokes my eye out, I'm going to take more than their eye, right? That's just kind of, that tends to be how we operate. And God knows that. And so he says, I'm I'm going to institute this law to make sure justice is served and you're wrong, but also to keep you from overextending where you probably would. So it's meant to discourage private revenge. And because of God's law, because God said, hey, retaliation is a just thing when you've been wronged, God's people were free from the need to extract personal revenge. There's a text in the New Testament that should goes right along with this, that should help calm our fears, that should help calm our desire for revenge, that should help calm us in general, but I think oftentimes we fail to extend it to that. It's Galatians 6, where Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Now you think about that. God is not mocked. What does that mean? He's not made fun of, not made a fool of. There's a lot of evil in the world, yeah? There's a lot of injustices in the world, yeah? 
There's a lot of things that people tend to look at and say, if God was real, He wouldn't let this happen. That argument, or a form of that argument, discourages a lot of people from faith. I can't believe in a God who would let such and such happen. But the Bible is very clear, we need to understand that, that God keeps a record of those things. And in the end, in eternity, He is not mocked by those things. People are not sinning against God in such a way that it will not go unpunished. And He instituted this law to free us from the, from the need of feeling like I've got to get revenge. You wronged me, I've got to get you back. And God said, no, you don't need to. I'll handle that. You don't, even, you don't even need to concern yourself with that. Because you know what is going on in our hearts? Or I should say, what isn't going on in our hearts when we're focused on revenge? Worship. When I'm so focused on trying to get revenge for you because you've wronged me, I am not thinking about honoring and loving and glorifying God. I'm thinking about how gross of a person you are, how much you owe me. We talk about, I spent several hours last night with a couple who's about to get married, and we talk about this, the idea of retribution in marriage. How often do spouses punish each other over things? We punish each other through being cold, through withholding emotion or affection, through being mad at each other. And I talked about if grace and mercy are not present in a marriage... Then one of my favorite quotes from a book is, we'll end up flogging each other from everything from a leaky faucet to a phone bill. But where mercy is present, sweetness exists. And that's what Jesus is saying. If all I'm doing is being hung up on trying to get revenge on you, then you're going to be a really unhappy person. And totally unnecessarily. Because it's all God's anyway. And so when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews are living under Roman occupation. They hated the Romans. They looked for ways to overthrow them. There are several examples of revolts throughout history. That's what led to the destruction of Rome in AD 70 when Rome came in and burned the temple. They were crushing a Jewish rebellion. If you've ever been to Israel, then you've, you've probably seen Masada, which was a, a plateau in the wilderness where there's a, a society... And the Jews lived up there for several years until the Romans built a ramp up there and conquered them. They had this idea that Rome had wronged us and we'll get our retaliation and never worked out. Turned the wrong page. So Jesus says, You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So according to Jesus, it's not the disciples' personal responsibility to resist an offending person. Or to set oneself against someone who might wrong you. It's not our responsibility to do that. On a personal level, the disciple's first responsibility is to reverse that situation and make it a situation where taking is involved and turn it into a situation where giving is involved. Someone wants to take your coat, give them your coat. It's like on the uh, TV shows, you're fired. Well, you can't fire me. I quit. 
is flipping the nature of the situation in a very real way. People wrong us all the time. Use it as an opportunity to right. So whereas the evil person has attempted to take, Jesus' disciples, he says, are to serve that person. Now that's radical. Very uncomfortable. Totally against our nature. Disciples are not to have retribution, a retribution first mentality even when they're being abused. They must think of ways to advance the kingdom of heaven and its influence on earth. Here's what Jesus is saying. If somebody wrongs you, if they're in the process of wronging you, your first response should be, how can the kingdom be made much of in this moment? Somebody's insulting you, if somebody's harming you physically, if somebody is extorting you, if somebody's doing whatever they're doing, there's something wrong, Jesus says, our first response is to make much of the kingdom. Because the ultimate goal of the disciple is to seek an opportunity for that enemy to be converted. That tends not to be our first response, I think, if we're honest. Our first response tends to be Retaliation. We want that person to pay for what they've done. And Jesus is saying, nope, pause. Our first response should be evangelism. How can I turn this situation where I'm being wronged and make it into a moment where the gospel can shine forth? We see on my notes here the question of self-defense. Am I allowed to defend myself if somebody breaks in my house? That's not really in view here. And just so you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in self-defense. I own weapons. I have a plan in my head. All right? So, I mean, there are other pastors who don't. They believe that it's wrong to own weapons and wrong to, to defend oneself. So there's some disagreement on that. And that's not, that's not really what's in view here. The question is, how do we respond? What's our motive? Problems arise when we do not view the kingdom of God in this way. This is hard teaching again. When the kingdom of God is not our primary motive, when it's not our primary treasure, this kind of thinking is just hard and uncomfortable and really it's discarded. If we are not in Christ, if we're not His disciple, this way sounds like utter foolishness. This is why Jesus prefaces, or why Matthew prefaces this whole section of Scripture by saying Jesus is talking to Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. Because this kind of stuff to non-Christians sounds like foolishness. He's talking to people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so what, call, what would cause a man or a woman to absorb wrong for the good of their abuser? What would cause a person to look past personal wrong and seek to advance the agenda of another at their own personal cost? Well, just as Jesus said we didn't think deeply enough about hatred and lust, He says we've yet to think deeply enough about retaliation. And you see the highlighted section is this not the lifestyle that Jesus himself lived? First Peter chapter 2, picking up in verse 20, says, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it that you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying, for you were straying like sheep, and have now been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Is this not exactly what Jesus did on the cross? In a moment where he was being wronged unto death, not only did he not retaliate, but he turned that and used it as an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. And we should not think that he calls us to anything less. Did he not utilize his own personal abuse for the sake of God's kingdom? Did he not utter the phrase from the cross, Father, forgive them as they murdered his body? What was more important to Jesus than the advancement of the kingdom? If you've been paying attention on Sundays, then you know in Mark, it said, this is why I came out. That's why I came out, to advance the kingdom. And so we need to ask that question. Is the kingdom of God the single most important thing about my life? One of the ways to find out is to be in such a situation. Now, I don't think you should go out and intentionally put yourself in such a situation to find out. But the point remains, is, is the kingdom what is most essential to your life? And in those moments when I am being wronged, Jesus says, that's a gospel moment. You don't need to worry about getting revenge. God will handle that. Remember, he's not mocked. Think about what Peter says. That in the midst of all that was going on around his crucifixion, he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. So the mark of a Christian, brothers and sisters, is that we continuously entrust ourselves to God, knowing that he judges justly. And so again, bringing the Beatitudes into it, we see that those who are merciful have no need to retaliate. Because they have been shown mercy through the gospel, they will show mercy to others. Even when it's at their own expense. Let's go on to, to love and hatred. Can I yes. Ask a sure. Back to the giving part. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's say that you encounter a person, and over time you have given this person money, mm-hmm. and then God reveals to you that this person suffers from drug addiction. Mm-hmm. So you know that by giving this person money, you can become a crutch right. and enable them. Mm-hmm. So. How do you pursue the kingdom in this matter? Right. I mean, you can get food and you can get water and stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, there's a helpful phrase, uh, when helping hurts. It's a good phrase to remember. Uh, you don't want to prop up somebody in sin. You know, we don't want to withhold help. But it's a wisdom issue as to what's the best help at what time. So if you find out, hey, I've been supporting this person financially, they're using these monies for something like drugs, then the most loving thing to do in that moment is to stop giving them money. Like, I care about you enough to cut you off. Uh, which is really, although that person wouldn't see it that way in the moment, it's really a pursuing of their good. Like 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Any other thoughts, questions? Okay. Let's go on to love and hatred uh, back in Matthew 5. Picking up in verse 43. Jesus said, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain out on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so Jesus quotes here one of the most well-known Old Testament verses and ideas, the, the idea of loving your neighbor. God commands this through Moses and the law. We should love one's neighbor. The Old Testament law, if you understand it kind of from a holistic point of view, has in mind the neighbor, caring for the poor, caring for those in need. And Jesus later says, when a legal expert asked him about the law, he says the greatest commandment is loving God and loving your neighbor. But his second statement, hate your enemies. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to hate our enemies. On the contrary, often it tells us over and over again to love our enemies. But the idea arose out of Jewish culture and out of that Jewish commentary on the law, on the Mishnah. Love our neighbors is central to the Old Testament. But alongside of that is the idea of God's hatred of sin. Now, there's a common phrase in, uh, I won't say Christianity, I'll say, anybody ever heard of churchianity? Common phrase in churchianity that would say God hates the sin but loves the sinner. We've heard that before. Uh, that's, that's really not biblical. The Bible is full, especially in the Psalms and the Old Testament, about God hating the sinful. And that's a distinction we've made to make it feel more comfortable. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now God pursues the sinner and beckons them to come to salvation. But God hates sinfulness. He hates wickedness. And later groups in Israel and Jewish culture took these things and combined them in a way to produce these definitions of we should just hate our enemies. These communities of Jewish people came up with these books. One of them is called The Rule of Community where it talked about hating enemies. They defined neighbor in such a specific way that they freed themselves up to hate other people. Our neighbors are the people that are like us. They live in a certain proximity. That's why the legal expert asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? It's that idea that somebody's not my neighbor. It's okay to deal with that person differently than the person who is my neighbor. And such attitudes tend to linger today. There are people in our minds that we've gotten okay with hating. Like those really wretched people in history that have committed mass atrocities. Uh, I remember, you know, I, just recently when the uh, leader of... ISIS was blown up or blew himself up. I remember seeing people on Facebook. He had that coming. Good for him. People celebrating the death of an evil person like it's a good thing. Instead of mourning over the fact that he's died and gone to hell. When Jesus brings together neighbor and hatred in a very stark way. Not only are we to not hate the wicked, but we should seek out reconciliation with them. 
So this is the overflow from what he's just talking about with retaliation. Jesus is saying that his disciples are to look at the people of the world in the same way that God sees them. To love them enough to reach out with a message of reconciliation. Although God hates sin, God invaded the world through Jesus Christ in order to seek out and save sinners. To bear the message of reconciliation. But notice what Jesus says. He says, so that, in verse 45, do this so that you may be sons of your Father. We need to be clear, Jesus is not setting the criteria for salvation. He's not saying, love your enemies so that you can be Christians. What he's saying is, the fruits of salvation present themselves in loving our enemies. You see, the world takes notice when gospel love is on display. Remember what Jesus said about his disciples, the world will know them by their Know them by their fruits, you'll know them by their love. And love is a fruit of the gospel in our lives. And so Jesus is not saying, this is how we become Christians. He's saying, this is how the genuine Christian acts. Well, the pure in heart will love both friend and foe. They'll love the entire world for whom Jesus gave his life. Peacemakers are already sons of God and will demonstrate their sonship through loving their enemies. And those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake have entered the kingdom of heaven through the righteous gift of God, and that will give them the desire and the empowerment to continue to live it out. And so what Jesus is doing is He's saying, look, I've explained to you what genuine Christianity looks like, and it's necessary for being a Christian. Sometimes we can think, if I just call myself a Christian, I'll be a Christian. If I just slide this book under my pillow and sleep on it, it'll get in my noggin. And what Jesus is saying is, until the Holy Spirit empties you of all that you are naturally and fills you up with all that God is, none of this will ever make sense. None of this will ever be doable. And so that's why he winds up this section in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect, without fault. You must be he or she who does not mess up. Really, this is a fitting conclusion to his teaching. It really is. He's chosen representative texts, that's Jesus. He's chosen these six representations of the law to make his point. He's chosen to clarify not only the intent of the law, but the nature and the purpose of the law, which is a reflection of God Himself. The law was not given so that we would have a checklist to Jesus. If I could just obey what the law is saying, if I could just be good enough for God based on God's criteria, then I'm good. Jesus is saying, look, I've just pulled out six things and shown you in just these six things. You've missed it. That the gospel not only frees us from this obedience-minded, God will be pleased with me as long as I obey. That's, that's not gospel thinking. Gospel thinking is the Holy Spirit indwells me and saves me from all that's natural in me and empowers me to live a new life. And so therefore, as disciples pursue the law's true intent and motive, they are in fact pursuing God Himself. 
When I decide that in a moment where I am being wronged to say, this is a moment to advance God's kingdom, that's evidence of God at work in you. When there's an opportunity to to lust or to hate or to seek revenge to say, how would God's kingdom apply to this? That's evidence of the fruit of the gospel in your life. That's a pursuit of God himself. And so whereas someone might read verse 48 and walk away depressed because they know immediately they're not perfect. Verse 48 functions in a few different ways. Number one, it's a command. If you look at the language, how it's written, it is a command. It's what's called an imperative, a do this statement. Be perfect. Jesus is not telling us to be spotless. What he's telling us is to be like God. Be godly in your actions. But secondly, it's a promise. You see, if we evaluate the Greek, which I know a lot of you do this in your devotional times, you sit down and do your Greek exegesis and sentence diagramming. But there's a, there's a, there's a, a tense, a grammatical tense, which indicates timing. And this is what's called a future tense phrase, which means it anticipates that something is coming in the future. That's why language is important. And so when we read that phrase, you must be perfect, Matthew wrote it indicating that there's coming a time in the future when we will be. And we know, if we read the Bible, uh, Revelation 21 says, in that day we will dwell with God and God will dwell with us and sin will be no more. We know 1 John 3, 3 says that there's coming a time when we will see God as He is because He will have done away with our sin. And Jesus is saying here, not only in the command to be perfect, but I'm promising you there's coming a day when you'll be perfect. And that promise gives way to hope. If I put all my hope in my efforts to be godly, then I'll have no hope. But if my hope is in God's ability to make me godly, then I will have hope that doesn't run out. Psalm 16, verse 11, or verse 10 and 11, it says, You make known to me the path of life, and your presence there is fullness of joy, treasure forevermore, pleasure forevermore. That's the promise that gives way to hope. And so this is not ultimately burdensome teaching. It's burdensome if you hear it as, Be perfect, otherwise you're out. The Pharisees had made it burdensome. We naturally make these things burdensome, but it's not burdensome. Jesus is not saying literally be perfect or else. He's encouraging holy discontentment that is on the move. Let me explain what that means. God's called me to be like Him. I'm not there yet. He's working in me. I'll be there one day. And so I'm going to keep trying. You know, Paul says something that accords with this idea in Philippians 3. He says... Not that I have made Jesus my own, but Christ Jesus has made me His own. And therefore, I will press on towards the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. He said, those of you who are mature, let's think that way. Holy discontentment that's on the move. I'm not okay with where I'm at. 
I'm not okay with the sin that I still struggle with. I'm not content to sit around and say, all right, it'll be done one day. I'm going to always be fighting against my sin. I'm always going to be seeking holiness. I'm always going to be putting sin to death with the hope that there's coming a day when God will finish that work. So before I pray, thoughts or questions on that? Mm-hmm. The scribes and Pharisees were always trying to find fault in Christ. They were being deceitful people about he was evil and so forth. And Christ knew they were really trying to kill him. Of course, he had every right to hate him. Yeah. But Jesus could read that mind sometimes and knew what they were thinking and he would rebuke them as puzzled. Was he trying to reconcile even the scribes and Pharisees? Was he evangelizing them? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I, mean, I think we see that with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to faith. He, he leaves the Pharisees and comes to faith. I don't think in his public confrontations that he's doing that. I think he's... Uh, because, you know... Romans tells us that there are points in history where God has intentionally hardened the hearts of those that would oppose him, Pharaoh, or with Esau, or with others. And I think the same we see with the Pharisees. So I don't think that was necessarily an evangelistic time. I do think, like I said, some Pharisees did come to faith. Well, I mean, you know, Jesus had something we don't. And that's you know, the ability to, to see into those people's hearts. And it's not for us to know what's inside a person's heart or what God's doing with a certain person. It's up to us to be, uh, to testify to the kingdom. You know? And Paul says, you know, Paul was a smart dude. Very smart man. And yet, in 1 Corinthians, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ crucified. He said, which is a stumbling block. So it sounds like foolishness to those who aren't being saved. So even if we look like fools to people, which we shouldn't intentionally be foolish, right? But we should know that the message of the cross will sound foolish to people who aren't being saved. And so we should go on testifying. So according to court of law, we have to take the Right. I think that's an appropriate use of oaths under what Jesus says. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, because you've also got uh, Romans 13 where Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. Right. So there, we have an ethic to be in right relationship to our laws of the land, even though those are underneath God's laws. But I think that's an appropriate use of oaths as it would come from Scripture. The application of that moment would be for a Christian, if you're going to take an oath, be true to the oath. Even if it costs you something. Other thoughts or questions? Alright.
Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Um, Jesus is now going to move out of this, this Christian in relation to the law and move into a new section of the sermon, which is practical Christianity lived out. So, uh, taking what, what he's taught us and then beginning to apply that. So, let's, uh, let's pray and seek him. Lord, thank you for our time to come before you through your word. We confess together that your word is more important than food, more important than water. It's more important than anything else in this world. So help us, Lord, to keep ourselves individually and corporately, uh, keep us focused on your word. Help us to see, oh God, that we need you in every way, that your command to be perfect is a command, it's a promise, and Lord, it is the ground for our hope that is unfading. Lord, help us to be people of integrity. Help us to trust you so much that we have no need to seek revenge, knowing that you are a God who judges justly. Lord, help us to love our enemies and to seek to advance the kingdom. Help us to love as much as you did that on the cross you said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a good night.